Hey, it's Jay. And one of the more incredible stories that we were fortunate to tell last year has just kept building and building since that time. It's the story of the Savannah Bananas. They are a minor league baseball team in Savannah, Georgia, which some have claimed is more circus than baseball, but others view as the savior of a sport in desperate need of some new life. In recent months, a lot has happened with their organization. For starters, I don't even know if you can really call them a minor league baseball team anymore. They recently announced that they were leaving their league, the Coastal Plain League, and they're going all in on a unique brand of baseball that they've invented called Banana Ball. Banana Ball has its own set of rules, some that seem really bizarre, others that seem refreshing if you want to watch a better product on the field as a fan. And you're going to hear about Banana Ball in this episode. The team's story has also spread way beyond our show and anywhere else they appeared before we told their story. I mean, set aside the truly eye-opening numbers on social media with followers and engagement far beyond even the biggest major league teams. Set that aside. Their story has spread through more traditional means as well. They've been covered by CNN, The New York Times, The Los Angeles Times, ABC News, The Takeaway, which is a podcast from WNYC Studios and PRX, and The Today Show, just to name a few on a really big, ever-growing list. And over this summer in 2022, ESPN created an entire docu-series called Banana Land for their streaming service ESPN+. Their owner is Jesse Cole. And given everything that he wants to do for the sport that he truly loves, I would like to hazard a guess as to what he's up to. The move away from the Coastal Plain League towards purely focusing on banana ball is one step towards a much, much grander vision. Either Major League Baseball evolves more quickly and adapts some of the bananas' ideas into their league, or, I'm guessing, Jesse and those who see things his way are going to create a brand new professional league competing directly with the MLB. Just a guess, no one has told me anything, but Jesse is a very big, very deep thinker. And in his words, it all comes back to one driving focus, a focus, by the way, that Major League Baseball is currently lacking, doing everything in your power to be fans first. So without further ado, please enjoy one of my all-time favorite stories in the history of this show, Going Bananas. Baseball is a sport for romantics. The history of it all, the way it's caught up in American culture, the bright green grass and the sunlight in the spring that matches the hopefulness of the spring itself. Baseball is a sport for romantics, but this is not a story about baseball. It's a story about why people feel romantic about their work, what causes them to fall in love with something, and why they might have irrational bias towards an experience, whether we're doing the work or someone else is on the receiving end of what we create. This is not a story about baseball. It's a story of what causes people to fall out of love with something, or new generations to simply never care. This is not a story about baseball. It's a story about your work and mine, and how the way we feel towards what we create affects the way others feel too. If it doesn't resonate with us, how can we expect it to resonate with them? But to really understand these ideas, we first have to understand a lot more about baseball, or more specifically, what's happening to this sport for romantics. Because the thing is, the romance is fading.
troubling, it's common, but there's hope. It's unthinkable. Exploring why work resonates and how ours can too. I'm Yankees fan, Jay Akunzo. Today, we're visiting an unexpected place. And at the center of the story we find there is that sport that's as American as apple pie, struggling to remain central to our culture. Also at the core of this story is the guy you'll meet today, a guy who showed up to our interview, this audio-only experience that we create, in a bright yellow tuxedo and yellow top hat. Because that's his uniform. That's what he always wears. He is Jesse Cole, and Jesse is a former baseball player turned team owner. And anyone who cares about baseball, but really anyone who cares about creating passionate fans of their work, should be paying close attention to what Jesse and his team are doing. So get out your popcorn, peanuts, and Cracker Jack, because I have a feeling once you head to Savannah, you may never want to get back. Where did your love of baseball begin as a person? I was five years old. Uh, my dad took me to the Rookie League, South Shore Baseball Club, and the coaches were all about making it fun for kids. And I remember uh, the, the first time I came up to bat, my dad was on the sideline and he said, Jess, swing hard in case you hit it. And I smiled and, and, and I think I looked back. My dad was laughing. The other coaches were laughing. And my dad proceeded to tell that to me almost every time I came up as a kid. And I swung and missed a lot. But when I hit it, you know, I... Uh, I made some good contact. You know, I think I hit 15 home runs in, in Little League, my 12-year-old year. And, you know, I started to really have fun. And I remember we would do all these, uh, we would have practices where my dad would bring out the music and we'd play a boom box. And we'd be listening to music, playing the game. And we would do shadow ball where we'd actually practice without a baseball and practice making diving plays. And I remember all that as a kid. You know, I would go on the mound and act like I was Hideo Nomo and do the Hideo Nomo lineup. And I would be oh, like, oh, yeah. Oh, speaking my language, Ken Griffey yes. Jr. presents Major League Baseball on Nintendo 64. <laughs> I, I, give me that. Yeah, yes. that era of baseball. Oh, it was fun. You know, I was Pedro Martinez and Omar and Hideo and, you know, I used to do all the weird stances and it was, you know, you got to emulate the guys that were having fun, the guys that were doing something different. And, you know, I, I love, love playing the game. I was talking to professional teams. I had letters. I was filling out questionnaires. But then I had my moment when I was, uh, my career ended. And unfortunately, you know, I tore my shoulder and had three tears and that ended it right like that. And looking back, it was the best moment that ever happened to me. But I thought I was going to coaching. So I went and coached in the Cape Cod League, which we know is the, the best college talent in the country. And I'm sitting in the dugout and I look at that roster and almost all of them played in the, the bigs, many all-stars. And I'm sitting in the dugout as a coach and literally the best scene in the house with the best players in the country. And I realized I was bored. And I realized something there that I loved playing the game, but I didn't have the same enjoyment watching the game. And I said, I'm gonna make, I want to create a game that anybody will love to watch, that that's fun. That's like it was back in the 30s, 40s, and 50s when baseball was everything. And so that was my aha moment that right now, I, I, I don't love the game as much as I did when I played, but I love what the game can be. And that's what I think about on a daily basis. There's such a romanticism around baseball, and I, I feel it acutely as a fan, as a writer, as a former sports journalist. It's, I never lost it. I remember I talked once to Buster Only at ESPN. I was this little intern, you know, trying to figure out what I want to do with my life, and I had to do a series of press releases on the personalities at ESPN. They were trying to promote 
their on-air personalities in their marketing, which at the time I guess was a big idea. And uh, I said to Buster, I was like, "Do you do you still root for the Yankees? Do you still?" And he's like, "You know what? No, I, I'm not a fan of a team. I'm a fan of the sport. I'm a fan of stories." And what he what he conveyed to me in that moment was he didn't lose his romanticism by moving into a different role. It just shifted. Mm-hmm. I wonder how does that apply to you when you look at baseball and the state of the sport? It pains me to say it, but I think it's it's falling behind a little bit. That's an understatement. I mean, you know, I, 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 I'm more like you. I'm a romantic. I look at stories. But if you do look at numbers, uh, MLB viewership is down dramatically. Attendance has been down for how many years in a row? Uh, the baseball games are continuing to get longer for seven straight years. This year, they were over three hours and 12 minutes long. Um, the average baseball fan is in their 60s. Um, when you ask, they did a, ESPN did a study and they asked kids, you know, who are their top uh, favorite athletes and in the top 100, there were only two uh, two ball players and baseball players in it. And so it's staggering what's happening with baseball. Um, unfortunately, uh, Major League Baseball is making more money than they ever have, you know, billions of dollars based on TV rights, which is uh, limiting the desire to adjust the game more for the kids and make it more fun. I think they need to break down the barriers. I think they need to make the game more fun and have the players allowed to express themselves more, show them more behind the scenes, encourage bat flips, encourage the fun. You know, we're so fortunate. It's crazy. We have 250,000 more followers on TikTok than any major league baseball team. And I think it's because we're able to show the fun uh, even more so. The fact that Jesse's team does well on social media is not the surprise. Fun, unique, and heartwarming things all play pretty well on these channels. No, what's surprising is the team that Jesse runs. There are three things you should know about them. Thing one, it's a minor league baseball team. Not exactly the popular type of sports franchise to resonate on a national level. Mostly, minor league teams aren't known outside of the small halo of towns around where they play. Thing two, there's the name. The Savannah Bananas. You know, six years ago, my wife and I were sleeping on an airbed. We had to sell our house. We were completely out of money to go all in on on the bananas. And, you know, I'll never forget those nights barely being able to sleep because we had only sold two tickets in our first three months and people didn't trust or know who we were and what we were going to be. And thing three, there's all the stuff happening on the field and around the stadium. Every ticket the bananas sells is all-inclusive. One price, all the food and drink, everything you want. Includes all your burgers, hot dogs, chicken sandwiches, soda, water, popcorn, dessert, everything for $20. Instead of throwing out the first pitch, a fan comes onto the field to throw out the first banana. They've removed all the ads that usually decorate the walls and interior hallways across the stadium and became the first ad-free ballpark currently running in the professional leagues. Every game, the players will do choreographed dances, sometimes to Britney Spears or Michael Jackson or Toby Keith, One game, the players might come out to the field wearing kilts. The next time out, you might see a hitter walk up to the plate escorted by a band or with a caddy like a golfer. Of course, they have the Banana Nanas, a senior citizen dance team. The Banana Nanas. And do they have cheerleaders? Yes, of course they have cheerleaders. They're called the Dad Bod Cheerleading Squad. Onto the field, please welcome the baby of a fan dressed in banana attire, held up by the players and staff like Simba from The Lion King. And they sing, Those can't possibly be the actual lyrics, I know. And apologies, you had to endure my verbal car crash. And much like a car crash, every time you hear there's a new promotion being tried by the bananas, you just can't look away. Do you recall heading into a game where you knew you were going to try something for the fans and you had no idea if it was going to work? 
<laughs> uh, if I said every night, you you would you would think I'm lying, but. Uh, <laughs> No, the reality is, I will say this and I'll, and I'll give you an exact example, but the reality is every single night we do four new promotions we've never done in front of a live crowd. So if you look at that, that's thousands of new promotions we've tested over the years. The biggest one, the biggest example was uh, the first ever halftime show in a baseball game. And so I had this vision of surprising everybody and the St. Patrick's Day game uh, that we had this past March. And I got this Savannah pipe and drum band, gentlemen that all play the bagpipes and right at eight o'clock. We had a countdown and the players rushed off the field and our announcer said, fans, it's now time for the halftime show. Please welcome the Savannah Pipe and Drum Band. And I had no idea what was going because they couldn't make rehearsal because they were all at regular jobs. So they were the slowest developing halftime show I've ever seen because, you know, they were all in their 60s, 70s and maybe some in the 80s. So they slowly walked out and instead of facing the crowd, they faced themselves and the crowd is like, what is going on? They're just playing bagpipes. And then finally they walked off the field and everyone was like, ah, and just kind of confused. And that was an example of doing something that when you do something you've never done before, you never know how it will go. That's real innovation. And, uh, but that's something we haven't done since, but we will do more of because I know there's a way to make it work. The wrinkles, reinventions, and outright gimmicks used by the bananas doesn't stop at the stuff around the game. They're even trying to reinvent the sport of baseball itself. In 2018, the franchise began an experiment, testing their ideas at two colleges, Lander University and Wofford College. Wofford, by the way, is where Jesse Cole was once a very promising pitching prospect, a potential major league draft pick before shoulder injuries his senior year ended his career. Anyways, the new form of baseball that the Bananas were trying out was dubbed Banana Ball, and it featured some new rules all intended to make the games faster and more exciting to watch. Eventually, they ended up debuting the concept in 2020 at the Bananas' home field, Grayson Stadium. In Banana Ball, each game is limited to two hours, unlike traditional baseball, which has no clock. So games can and often do exceed three, four, sometimes even five hours or longer if there's a tie and they have to head into extra innings. In Banana Ball, there's no bunting allowed and no pitching mound visits by the coaches. Batters can't step out of the box to constantly tinker with their batting gloves or uniform or shoes, and if they do step out, it's a strike. That's some weird stuff for baseball traditionalists to witness, but it kind of still does play. I mean, it's happening within the confines of the game, I guess. You could see Major League Baseball eventually making changes like this, too. But then, Banana Ball gets wackier. If a fan catches a foul ball, that counts as an actual out. Also, each inning is a point, so you're not playing to win the game so much as you are playing to win each inning. First to five points, you win, the game is over. This also means if you're the home team, which always bats after the opponent, you can technically have this heroic walk-off win each inning. Speaking of walk-offs, let's talk about walks. For the non-fan, a walk happens after four balls are pitched to one batter. In other words, four pitches outside of the strike zone delivered by the pitcher to a given batter. That batter is then awarded first base. This is another reason games can feel so slow. So Banana Ball turns walks into sprints. After ball four, the batter does get first base for free, but they can also sprint as far as they'd like to further bases. And the only way the opposing team can stop them is if all nine fielders touch the ball first. So sure, 
the catcher can throw around the horn, out to the outfield, back to second base and try to block that runner. Or, like the Bananas have tried, you can deploy a crazy strategy, like everybody playing defense runs together to second base and you play hot potato around all nine players so you can touch the ball as quickly as possible and stop the runner. It's faster, it's more exciting, it's different, to say the least. It's also rare. This is a special style of exhibition play, not the norm for the bananas, but it did help provide an example to others in the sport to create and promote a better product. This is right in line with the way Jesse thinks. He says that his heroes are P.T. Barnum, the founder of Barnum & Bailey Circus, and Walt Disney. To quote P.T. Barnum, Without promotion, something terrible happens. Nothing. For Jesse and his team, that mentality literally starts with their name, the Savannah Bananas. That name was actually from a fan who was picked as the winner of a contest to name the team, announced on February 25th, 2016. But really, the fact that Bananas was a potential name, the fact that it was in contention at all, was all thanks to what happened about six months earlier. October 5th, 2015, we showed up to the stadium. Everything was taken out of the ballpark. The former team cut the phone lines. They cut the internet lines. So we grabbed a picnic table from outside the park. We brought it into an abandoned storage building. It was myself, my wife, our 24-year-old team president, and three 22-year-olds straight out of college. What a crew. So we started using our cell phones, calling everyone to try to get people to buy tickets. We failed miserably. But on November 12th, we had a launch event. So we actually sent invites to every business, everything. We went all in and it was free food, free drinks, everything. We had the whole conference center. We had only about 85 people total show up for us. But we did have the media show up and we announced that we're going to need help naming the team. And so we asked for suggestions. I said, we need something different, something unique, something you know, really interesting and fun for Savannah. So we proceeded to get 999 <laughs> very generic normal names. The, <laughs> the spirits, the ghosts, the ports, the anchors, you know, all just really generic names. And uh, But one woman, Lynn Moses, a 62-year-old nurse, suggested bananas. She wrote, this would be fun. And so we looked at our team and we said, ah. You know, we could have our senior citizen dance team called the Banana Nanas. You know, we could have a mascot named Split. We could have a, uh, you know, we just kept going down the line, Go Bananas. We kept going all these, all these ideas, all these themes. And so we said, let's roll with it. And we actually spent two days preparing our team to get criticized. So we actually did, uh, we said, uh, all right, guys, when people say that's the dumbest name, I hate it. What are you going to say? And they say, oh, you know, why would you name it? What does, what does that have to do with Savannah? Why would you name the Bananas? And we actually worked on it. And we were right. As soon as we named February 25th, uh, locally, we got absolutely crucified. You know, whoever came up with this name should be fired. You'll never sell a ticket. Uh, the owner should be thrown out of town. You guys are an embarrassment to the city. We heard it over and over and over again. But nationally, it was on Sports Center for 15 minutes. USA Today featured it at Yahoo, the front page of Yahoo. It was, it was everywhere. And we started, you know, creating attention. And so then it became polarizing and locals were against it. National was, and it started a conversation, which I think is one of the best parts of marketing. Can you create a conversation? And that's what it did. Nobody leaves a great concert or a great movie right in the middle. So why do so many people often leave baseball games before they're over? They're getting too long, too slow, too boring. We need more entertainment. And that requires changing things both around the game and in it. And yes, 
Major League Baseball is experimenting with things to do that, like limiting how often a coach can visit the pitcher's mound during the game, or how often they can change pitchers, which often slows the game down and adds dozens of minutes more to the runtime. They're doing lots of pace of play experiments. Nothing quite as radical as the bananas. But even still, some traditionalists in the sport clearly believe that some kind of change is needed. So I think Jesse and his team's hypothesis is rather easy to get on board with. But the distance they go to separate themselves from traditional baseball, to cover up the ills of their predecessors and the stigma that is slowly growing and spreading around baseball, causing them to lose fans, causing people who even work for the team to start to check out mentally. That commitment is something to behold. Whether or not you agree with their approach, it's not just an experiment here or there or a single promotion that ends. It's become their identity. And of course, because this is where it all starts, it's become Jesse's identity. He of the yellow tux and yellow top hat day after day after day. Do you ever get sick of wearing the color yellow? And also, how do you avoid just like constant attention from bees? <laughs> the attention from bees. No, I've been very fortunate that they haven't attacked much yet. Uh, maybe they're just confused and disillusioned by this crazy guy in a yellow tuxedo. But uh, <laughs> yes, I am. I am all in on the brand. I am all in on what we do. I believe in it so much. And the yellow tuxedo, I have seven of these. I wear them almost every day. And that's my uniform. When I put it on, it means it's showtime. So uh, yes, I, I am 100% all in on the, the yellow tux. You put on that tuxedo, you said it's your uniform. What changes when one puts on a uniform? You know, I was a baseball guy, played my whole life, and I uh, was fortunate to get a, a full college scholarship, played D1 baseball down in South Carolina. And it was a difference. When you put on your uniform, it's a different mindset. You know, it's game day. You're going to battle. You're going, it's a whole different mindset. And, you know, for me, most people at work, and especially over the last few years, you might have pajamas when you're working, you might, whatever you're wearing. Uh, for me, when I put on this yellow tux, it means it's showtime. It means I'm on stage. It means I need to amplify who I am and be the best version of myself. And so uh, this is for me, and it also more than anything, it gives our team permission to have fun, permission to not take yourself too seriously. I believe in fun. I believe in standing out. And I believe in being different. So for me, it's, this is just a uh, reflection of, of, I think, my, the best version of myself. So I think it's one thing to have the brand or philosophy affect how you show up in your marketing, say, digitally or even at the stadium before a game, you know, when you're walking around before the game starts, say that I'm someone who's never heard of the team yeah. or how you operate. At what point do I notice, wait, hold on, that something, <laughs> something is different? You know, as, as we've gone all in on who we are and the name of our company is Fans First Entertainment, our mission, Fans First Entertain Always. Every decision we make is Fans First. It's the entire experience that we've had to map. So to answer your question, you know, as soon as you buy a ticket, the first thing that's going to happen is you're going to get a video sent to you. And the one that I was a part of, you know, started with, congrats, you just made the best decision of your day. Right now, as your ticket order came in, a high priority siren went off at our stadium and our Bananiacs rushed to the ticket laboratory to produce your tickets. And then a banana Nana slowly walked in and hand selected your tickets and placed them on a silk pillow. And we sang, nah, Savannah, to celebrate the birth of a new fan. And then we watch your tickets underneath our stadium where they're in our vault, being watched by maximum security, ready for you to go bananas. <laughs> well, so, but like, Jesse, this is something that I, I struggle with with a lot of other brands where it's like, those are touch points that marketing can control. The way it's communicated, the controlled environment. There's also plenty to be said about how that philosophy maybe makes its way onto the field and affects the game, right? 
Oh, 100%. I mean, no player on our team gets a uniform until they go through fans first you. You can't even put on a uniform until you hear the stories that have built our brand. The fans first you is our onboarding that every single person on our team goes through. And literally, whether we have a guy come in the middle of the season, I drop what I'm doing, I'll spend an hour with them, sharing them the vision of who we are, what we do, and the stories that have built our brand. So everyone has core beliefs, but do many companies have stories that back up those core beliefs? So I'll bring the team together and I'll share the vision of where we started, the traditions, as Walt Disney would say, and the struggle that we were trying to get support in Savannah and in the community to where we are now. And, you know, we pinch ourselves when, you know, with the following and what's happened as we're playing all over the world. And it's crazy. I share that. I share the stories of, you know, players, a, a, a guy who joined us as a conditional player, Brian Encarnacion, who was only going to be with us for one day. And two kids came up to him, a five-year-old and a seven-year-old, both in bananas gear and said, hey, can we have your autograph? And he got down to his knee and he said, only if I can have yours. And those two kids gave his autog- their autograph on his hat. Wow. You know, it, was, it was Ethan and Steve. And they put their names right on his hat. And then from that point on, I tell that story. And now you look at our guys. and Our guys have all one name autographs of kids' names all over their hats, all over their sleeves, all over their shirts. And I share the stories of what fans first is. And that's just one. And there's obviously a numerals on. But they understand that they are not here just to play baseball. They are here to create memorable experiences that people will never forget. And so when they understand that, they, it's very easy to say, guys, all right, we're going to do our player dance this inning. All right, guys, here's what we're going to do uh, out in the plaza with the fans. They understand that there's a purpose behind it. It's not just to do the gimmicks. It's to create an experience. As a player, as a, a coach, a member of the staff, a trainer, you know, I've worked so hard to hone the ability that I have, you know, maybe in even more acutely, you feel this as a player where you're you're trying to get to that big stage. And it's been, you know, your lifelong dream to be a player. And then you join a team like the Savannah Bananas and you're asked to sort of learn new skills, try different things that maybe yeah. doesn't affect your your on field performance. Um have you heard any pushback from players or, you know, if so, how do you address it? 1000% in the beginning. I mean, I remember with our first team uh, in Gastonia, North Carolina, before our first game, before our first practice, I brought a dance instructor uh, to it. I said, guys, before we practice, we're going to learn how to dance. And I remember one pitcher in particular said, I'm not doing this. I'm here to play baseball. And he went off into the bullpen and he said, I'm just going to pitch. And the rest of the guys tried to dance. And I'll tell you, they're much better ball players than they were dancers. So, but that first night, I got four of them to dance. They did the jump on it dance. Uh, the second game, they did it again. And the fans started cheering more. They started signing more autographs. And by the third game, I'm walking through the, the grandstand and a husband and wife are talking. And I watched the wife go, shut up, honey. They're about to dance. And I was like, all right, we're on to something now. And then halfway through the season, because those guys were the most popular, signing the most autographs, they were loved the most by the fans, that pitcher who was against it came out on the field, ripped his belt off and started doing the jump on a dance going all in. What do we all need? And we do the love languages with everyone on our team, because, you know, if, if you want to create great fans in your business. And I believe everybody, every business you're in, you're not in the business of, of creating customers or getting customers you're in the business of creating fans. It's a different conversation. If you're in the business of creating fans, you need to create fans of your people first, of your team members, of your employees. And so we know what fires them up and we do love language tests with everybody that comes on our team. And number one, by far, it's not even close. And we have a young team, but number one is words of affirmation, words of affirmation by far. And so what happens is all these players 
they get more words of affirmation for the videos that they do with us and dancing and the TikToks where, you know, we have 900,000 followers or, you know, any of those or what happens during the game when they're on the dugout and they're doing the YMCA dressed up as the village bananas, which we actually have like a construction person and a, you know, a biker. <laughs> we have, they get in the full uniform. They get more feedback and recognition because of that. So what does it do? It reaffirms that what they're doing is good and making a difference. When Bill Leroy literally gets introduced coming from the crowd, we sit him in the with the fans for a whole half inning before he comes to bat, introduces himself to all the fans. They remember that. At the end of the game, they'll say, that was so cool. Thanks for sitting with my daughter. Thanks for sitting with my family. You know, we had 1,400 players reach out to us last year to play for a team of 30 people. And so we've now attracted the right players and we don't have that pushback anymore. Welcome into sports. I'm Amy Zimmer. One game in a Coastal Plain League championship on the line. Yes, it's worth saying out loud here, the Savannah Bananas and all their craziness are good. Really good. This is the moment the bunch sealed the deal. The Bananas secure the Pettit Cup with a 13-3 victory over the Moorhead City Marlins. The team capturing the franchise's second championship in franchise history. First in their division in their first season after the name change, two league championships, players drafted into the majors to the Atlanta Braves, the Oakland A's, Toronto, Cleveland, Kansas City, Milwaukee, the LA Dodgers. In 2021, the league champion Bananas were 36-8. and eight. They won 82% of their games, the most wins among the 16 teams in the Coastal Plain League. And of course, year after year, they lead the league in fan attendance, breaking records along the way. Now, their unique way of operating certainly isn't the lone reason they've had on-field success. Plenty of other, more traditional franchises win baseball games every single year. But what the Bananas have experienced, and what Jesse has concluded, is that the more fun they have, the more their own approach to their work resonates with them on a human emotional level, the more it shows up in the numbers. They're exceptional, thanks in large part to being an exception. What do you see from the average organization that is not very fans first of them? <laughs> Any type of sports team event, you buy a ticket and you get hit with ticket fees and often convenient fees, which are the most inconvenient fee in the world. Now some teams, a team was bragging to me about how they sell insurance now in case you can't come to a game. And they made $150,000 on ticket insurance this year. To me, the starting process is a challenge on how you are not creating fans. Shipping, you know, again, the way you do this is you eliminate every friction point. So in, in my new book coming out this year, Fans First, it, I talk about the five E's to create raving fans. And the first one is you look at every friction point in the experience. Walt Disney did this himself. Walt Disney lived in an apartment above the fire station in Disneyland. And almost every day he would walk the park in disguise. And he said, whenever I go on a ride, I'm always asking what's wrong with this thing and how can it be improved? So I realized ticket fees, convenient fees, parking fees, you know, having to get nickel and dime to the ballpark and having to pay for everything, uh, getting advertised throughout a game. All those are friction points. They drive revenue, but it's, it's short-term profits, which take away from creating long-term fans. And that's a different conversation. So that's how we built it. I mean, for instance, Jay, probably the biggest example is merchandise. 
we messed up badly in the beginning. You know, our first shipment of t-shirts had too many N's and bananas. We literally misspelled the name. <laughs> it was bad. From that point, what we've done now is we two years ago, we decided we're going to do free shipping no matter what. Not Amazon Prime, you pay $99 a year. Free shipping no matter what, we're going to do that. And not only that, we said, all right, we're going to have custom yellow boxes that have a big stamp that says delivered fresh. Then we're going to give you a free bananas koozie, a free bananas decal. We're going to have yellow tissue paper. We're going to have a wrapped and we're going to have a, a letter from our director of merch that says this has been sprinkled with potassium and they're ready for you to go bananas. And we call every single person that buys merchandise and thank them. Is that unscalable? You better believe it. And we found that out this year as we're doing hundreds of orders a day. We have had to bring extra people in <laughs> to actually make thank you calls to fans for buying it. We are $11 into every order, not including the product, before they even buy it. It is kind of Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory, but you know, in this case for baseball, like I'd love to work for an organization where it seems like from the outside looking in, every idea is a good idea. Every idea is something we can try. I'm assuming that that's both not the case and also very dangerous to believe to run a successful business and serve your fans better. There must be some sort of idea refinery process. The, the reality is uh, quantity leads to quality. So for instance, on our idea Palooza's that we have as the whole team, um, we try to solve a question for our fans. Like for instance, uh, what would make our experience so good that fans would want to stay till the end of the game? And everyone brings in three ideas. And then we bring it down and we, uh, into the ones that we definitely want to do. So yes, so we break that all down into 10, 20. Then who's going to own it? And then who owns the accountability? So we have you know, a yes, uh, needs work, and a maybe. Uh, the needs work is the polite way of saying uh, not right now or no. <laughs> um, and then the maybe is one that we will table for later. And so the, the key for ideas, you know, you know I, I said before, you know, ideas are currency, but implementation will make you rich. The key with any idea is who's going to execute it. And so we've really learned to, uh, if this is an idea that we're moving forward, who's going to own it? And so our video team has an idea for a new, uh, you know, League of Their Own skit or Major League skit or Moneyball skit. All right, you're going to write the script, you're going to create it, and you're going to own it. So many of those ideas are small. The big ones, the giant ones, they're like, hey, we're going to go play in Australia next year, which is possibly a possibility. That is a lot of just me and Jerry, you know, that we will say, all right, we see this. We look at what the, the, the win could be and we roll with it. Quantity leads to quality. The two are not opposites. Quantity is objective. Quality is subjective. Quantity is how much. Quality is how it compares to the spec, to the category. Did it match the spec? Do others prefer this in the category over other things like it? The trick is to learn to slowly nudge the spec forward so that bit by bit, your versions improve. You can actually harness your quantity as a place to practice while you maintain your intent all the while to deliver something high quality. That is close to what was promised, close to the spec, and also, something you anticipate being more highly preferred in the category. It'll resonate deeper than the norm. Quantity is how much, quality is how it compares to the spec, to the category. So think of it another way. Quantity can be a form of practice, while quality remains the aim. Jesse and his leadership team trust their team and give them ample runway to do it over and over and over, to try and fail and learn and try again, to innovate across lots of smaller ideas while the leadership team owns any of the big changes, the expensive risks. The bananas know that being exceptional is going to require lots and lots of swings.
Jesse's outlook and his approach feel unique to him. He is a singular personality with a singular vision. And really, the way he executes on that vision also feels specific to him. The crazy ideas, the unrelenting optimism. And that all feels relatively unscalable or not repeatable. And of course, to run a business is to somehow move beyond just whatever the founder can do or say to be able to scale that or at least repeat certain things around the whole team. So how do the bananas get that level of almost overwhelming optimism to spread beyond Jesse? And how do they do that repeatedly? Well, it starts with their business name, Fans First Entertainment. It starts with their mantra, Fans First Entertain Always. And it starts with Fans First You. We start our Fans First You. We have a Fans First playbook. Um, you know, when we hire people, we go through a Fans First process. You have to do a video cover letter so we can get to know your personality. You have to do a Fans First essay. Um, this is everybody, like literally a page on how you fit our core beliefs and then a future resume. Uh, no, we don't really care what you've done in the past. We want to know what you want to do in the future. And so we set the tone whenever we're hiring on being Fans First, Fans First, Fans First. The biggest standpoint for us is what we said is we said, we make baseball fun. What can you be the most of? And we said, we're going to try to be the most fun baseball team in the world. And the biggest momentum that we ever gained was this past year when we started having monthly uh, idea paloozas and content sessions on making baseball fun. And we get all our team together and we say, all right, what are these, what are ideas that we can do for the hitters entrances, for uh, the scoring celebrations, for our post-game interviews, for our pre-game hype videos that make baseball fun. And it brought everyone together on this, on the creative and coming up with their own ideas. And, you know, this past year growing three quarters of a million new followers, new fans, uh, you know, getting almost 100 million views and obviously very fortunate ESPN, USA Today and Wall Street. I think it got everyone aligned on we're not going to be the most traditional baseball team. We're not going to have the nicest stadium in the world. We're not going to have the best food in the world, but we will be the most fun team in baseball. And that we believe is fans first. So this is great because... I think there's one very helpful form of friction that an organization, a belief system, a movement, a team can create, which is when you put on display who you are and what you believe in loudly and proudly, it creates this useful filter or useful form of friction where the people who are going with you are going all the way into your corner instead of just kind of casually looking over at you or in your case, oh, I'll buy a ticket and never go to a game again. It's like, I'm all in, right? That the boat's leaving shore and I'm on it. And then there's other people that look at what you do and they go, I don't believe it. I'm yep. not buying it. Not I'm not with it. you. I'm completely out. Yeah. No, Jay, the great point, the question everyone should ask is who are you not for? Yes. And, and, and for us, it's very clear. We are not for baseball traditionalists. In fact, we lose four to six season ticket holders almost every year because they say it's become too much of a circus. And, and I am a hundred percent good with that because what happened, we actually, we, when we had our, our, uh, bananas podcast back in the day, we used to read the reviews of the week and it was only negative reviews, but it was always about, there's this Willy Wonka guy running around. It's loud. It's crazy. There's just people always jumping up and down. And it's always about the show being over the top. I mean, that's exactly who we are. So I, we share the bad reviews, <laughs> uh, which, which was a lot of fun. Um, and you know, we also, I mean, when we put out a, uh, a post to hire a director of group experience, uh, the title of the post was do not apply for this job. And we gave all the reasons why you should not work for us. And so I think what happens when you are so clear on who you're not for, you attract the people that you are for. What's the hardest part of running your team this way? Hmm. 
I mean, personally, my, my, you know, my biggest idea, my biggest challenge is, you know, I'm coming up with ideas every single day and that's my job. And how do you have the self-awareness um, to not throw too much at your team and to make them still feel empowered and have the ownership to do what's on their own agenda as opposed to continually throwing more ideas. So we're renovating our bathrooms, and this is a big expenditure for us. It's a couple hundred thousand dollars, which for us is, is, is a big capital cost. I told our team and Jared, who's our president, who's the lead integrator in everything. So I'm the visionary. He's the integrator. The uh, I'm sensing some EOS philosophy going on. Here. EOS, Rocket Fuel, you got that right. So Rocket Fuel is one of a big game changer for my relationship with Jared, our president. So he's the integrator. So I have the vision. And I'm like, if we're going to spend this on the bathrooms, we have to make them remarkable. We have to make them memorable. You know, we can have two golden thrones, like two stalls are the nicest bathroom stalls in the world. The bathroom, the toilet's gold, gold tile. It's over the top gold. You know, we'll create it in an old 1926 ballpark that will stand out. Every mirror should say self-checkout mirror. I want carnival mirrors inside. Uh, so when you're leaving, this is how you look in banana land. And so I'm sharing all these different ideas and we're halfway through the process, but I'm at Disney this past week and I'm at, and I go into the bathroom and I see there's the kids urinals. You know, there's always a urinal that's smaller, right? So the, the, the small kid urinal, and I'm looking at that and I'm like, uh, I got an idea. So I called Jared and we're already halfway through this process. We've designed, I said, Jared, we have to have a kid's urinal in every bathroom, but we have to paint it green and we have to have a sign in front of it that says for the bananas that aren't quite ripe. <laughs> yeah. uh. and, and so it's an idea at the last minute. Now, Oh my goodness, I have to find out how do we paint a toilet green? How do we do this? How do we change the plans? How do we make these revisions? And so that is always a challenge because as Walt had, he had ideas constantly. He's constantly thinking of ideas to create a better experience. But as an integrator, an executor, a person that's doing it, it's like, all right, now what? We're adding this new, now I gotta change and adjust that. So that's always a challenge for me because I will never stop thinking of how do we create a more remarkable, more fun, more experience? And how do you do that with being aware of your people and everything they're putting in to try to keep them feeling strong about it? So. Yeah. That's an inner challenge. A cynic might think, oh, well, you only need to do this stuff because it's minor league and minor league teams aren't major league teams. Uh, in other words, the perception could easily slip towards when your actual product isn't enough to draw people or win fans, whether it's baseball or software or you know a podcast, what you have to do is cover it with frosting and brightly colored sprinkles. Uh, an example from my world that I might give you is I make business shows for brands. And I've seen a show that I was not involved in and wouldn't have wanted to be where the software company who sold social media marketing tools uh, basically Im imitated Hot Ones on YouTube, where I don't know if you know, but every time they interview a celebrity on Hot Ones, they ask the celebrity to eat progressively spicier wings yeah. as the interview goes on. So that makes sense for that channel because that channel is about the intersection of pop culture and food. This marketing software company, the wings were just gratuitous. The wings were truly a hollow gimmick. And not only did it, I think, ring hollow, but I thought they missed a chance to say something meaningful through the premise of their show. But instead, mm. they chose a stunt. Yep. And so, again, the cynic could say that's because their show, they had no real great ideas about how to differentiate it. It was just an expert interview series like all their competitors. Why is the perception that what you do is just add frosting and sprinkles on a lesser product wrong? <laughs> it, it, that's a tough question for me because I never even think like that. I, I would just say it's a hundred percent authentic. It's who we are and it's what we stand for. And for us and for whatever business, 
if you find that, and if it feels like this is you, like I said, we want to be the most fun team in baseball. We make baseball fun and we're going to do that. We're going to fans first and we're going to entertain always. If entertain always is part of our mission, it's part of the name of our company. Of course, the bathrooms have to be entertaining. That's, that's literally the name of our company. And every decision we ask, is it fans first? So we have meetings just like Howard Schultz did with an empty chair. And we say, does a fan want this? If we make this decision, is this to make money or make fans? So I think, uh, I don't really focus on them. And, and I, I, know, I know the question, I understand the heart of the question, but I don't focus when traditionalists get mad at us because they say, you've, you've turned this into much of a circus. I have no interest in coming out anymore. Mm. I think of the word different and differentiation as actually sort of um, hiding the magic of great brand, great marketing, great service to an audience, building fans. Uh, when you say, I want to be different, it says different from whom? The competition. That's the implied question. And that's not who you serve. You don't hurt. You don't serve the competition. No. But when you say something like refreshing, which I much prefer, I think words matter. So refreshing forces you to ask a different, more productive question, which is refreshing to whom the the customer, the audience, the fan that you actually do serve. And so I, I like the way you frame that, because if you just put your head down and focus on who you actually serve instead of the market around you, you end up th making a lot more productive decisions. A hundred percent. And I, I think you, you jumped on something really key there. Uh, I asked this question to everyone, you know, when they say, hey, can you share me kind of some ideas for our business? And I asked them, well, what makes you different? And a lot of times they say, well, well, we're faster at this and we're, we're cheaper at this. We're better at this. If you have an er at the end, you're not yes. different. Relational words. Relational words kill the ability to create a truly great authentic experience that you own because you're anchored now to everybody who does what you do and trying to be slightly this or that compared to them. It's always comparative. And that's, I think, a race to the bottom. Correct. I mean, what, what makes you the only? And so I challenge every business to put on your website, on your about us, all the things that make you different. So we have a list of, you know, numerous, I mean, I think there might be 20 different things that, that makes us different. And then that becomes also shareable. And then people can talk about, oh, they do this, they do that, they do this. And if that list, I tell our team, if that's not changing and we're adding to that every year, then we're falling behind. When you're in the quiet, when you're, you know, slumping into a chair and taking off your yellow top hat, what doubts still creep in? I'm still the kid that's trying to make his dad proud. And so, you know, my parents were divorced when I was a kid. My mother had a drug problem. My dad fortunately was able to uh, win the court case and take custody of me. My dad's always been there, been, been so supportive of everything I've done, but I've always been trying to make him proud for that decision to change his life to make sure that he could take care of me. And I think back to a few years ago when my dad found out he had cancer and he had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, he had two forms of cancer and he was in the hospital for a long time. And every day I called him because I was, I was uh, at my job down here down south and I called him and said, dad, how you doing? He said, Jess, Jess, I'm great. I'm great. Every day he was great. Except one day I called my dad and he said, Jess, I'm good. I'm good. How are you? How are you? I found out from my stepmother that uh, he was literally almost on his deathbed. He was throwing up all day, the sickest he's ever been because of the chemo. But miraculously, a few months later, he was in remission. And the, the nurses and the doctors at uh, St. Joe's said that he was the most positive patient they've ever had. They've never seen someone so positive. Now he's as healthy as he's ever been. And every day when I'm down in a tough spot and I'm thinking about, I think about my dad and think about how positive he is and said, well, you know what? You have nothing to worry about. And as he always said, Jesse, don't worry about things you can control. Just stay positive. And 
I still continue to think about swing hard in case she hit it as he told me as a kid. So that's what drives me even when I have, you know, tough days. What is the difference in your mind between a customer and a fan? Very simple. Customers are transactional. They come and go. Um, and fans, you know, I believe, you know, fans never leave. When you create a fan, you're passionate. When you look at, you know, fans for the Red Sox for however many years until the curse and the Cubs and, you know, all these different teams, even when they don't perform well, you keep showing up because they keep showing up for you. And I think what happens is you have a passion. You have this enthusiasm towards that brand, uh, towards that company, towards that team. There's, there's a big difference. And I think a lot of times the way you create fans is you do for one what you wish you could do for many. I think, uh, as Andy Stanley said, a lot of companies, they're just saying, how can I grow my business by a thousand customers? You know, I'm, I'm interested. What can I do today to create a fan? And if it's just one, it's a different, different mindset. Thank you so much for listening. This episode was written and edited by me, Jay Akunzo, with production support by Alana Nevins. If you had any thoughts or questions about this episode, this show, or my work overall, email me. It goes right to me, not an assistant, jay at unthinkablemedia.com, and I'm also at Jay Akunzo on Twitter. If you have any thoughts about this, I love hearing from you. If you're looking for a good first step to extend your support and get some new stories and ideas from me every single week, consider subscribing to my weekly newsletter. It's called Playing Favorites, where every Friday you can get one new idea for creating work that resonates to help you grow your business and leave your legacy. You can join thousands of subscribers from brands like the New York Times, the BBC, Adobe, Salesforce, Red Bull, and more, plus plenty of entrepreneurs, marketers, freelancers, and independent creators like myself who get these emails. You can visit jayaconzo.com to subscribe or check your show notes for a link. I'll be back next week with a brand new episode of the show. Until then, keep making what matters. Bye-bye.